Hey everyone, it's Paul. And Kelsey. And this is the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. This podcast is about how goodness can be a successful strategy for good leadership. Our purpose is to spark positivity and what's possible thinking in leaders like you, so you can radiate goodness today and every day. Our mission is to spread goodness because goodness pays. I'm Paul Botts, the founder and CEO of Good Leadership Enterprises. This is being recorded in the Aspiration Suite of our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I make my living as an author, executive coach, and professional speaker. And I'm Kelsey Meyer-Shockle, an executive coach, facilitator, and podcaster, and I like to add a new mom. You can find more about this podcast and Good Leadership Enterprises at goodleadership.com, and you can check us out at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and now here on this podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at our website, goodleadership.com. And as always, we invite you to leave ratings, reviews, and comments. Today we're featuring Eric Gabrielson and Moira Petit, two speakers from the Good Leadership Breakfast that just happened today. Paul, will you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Good Leadership Breakfast? Sure. We started the Good Leadership Breakfast way back in 2010. And since then, it's been growing and growing and growing. As a matter of fact, today we just hosted our 15,000th guest. It's amazing. Yeah, it's been an amazing ride. And I think the reason why the breakfast is so popular, it's a very lively, interactive, participative type of breakfast series where we feature a speaker, we talk about the principles behind goodness, there's lots of roundtable discussions, and in general, it's a leadership development investment that our guests make when they come to the breakfast. The reason I chose Eric and Moira to speak is because they're a husband and wife partnership that owns a business together, very similar to Melinda and me owning this business. And I get a lot of requests from people who have a very dramatic personal story about a life or a death or something like that that's been really, you know, dramatic. But what I loved about these, this couple is that they were willing to talk about the intersection of their personal and professional lives in the story of their son, Kieran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so you're, telling, you're saying that a lot of people have these big stories that they want to share, but mm-hmm. there's something really unique about their story that got you excited to have them host. Yes, in particular in the fact that they really are running a business together and that mm-hmm. they're in the leadership consulting business like we are. I found that right. to be really, really interesting. Right. It was really easy to pick out connections when we um, listened to that. Today. Okay, so let's get started then. Let's do it. producing now 67 breakfasts. This story is very unique in the fact that it is a real story that has a very deliberate beginning and a very deliberate end right up to today. And so I think we should do our do it the most justice possible to give as much of that story as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I had the feeling around the table that it was an intense, important journey to hear. Um, and as a mom, oh my goodness, <laughs> my heartstrings were pulled. So I'm excited for all of you to hear this story. Good, let's listen. There is one date that's really imprinted on my mind, though. December 26, 2007. I was 20 weeks pregnant, and we were going in for a midterm ultrasound. I had just started to feel the baby move, so I was pretty excited about seeing it up on the screen. And so we're going into the ultrasound, and we're thinking that the biggest decision that we need to make is do we want to know the sex of this child? And we walked out of that ultrasound, that appointment, uh, with a recommendation from the doctor to end our pregnancy. 
Our child had been diagnosed with a very severe birth defect and was given a less than 25% chance of surviving. Our doctor also told us if our child did survive, that he was likely to have a very short life and that with many complications and it would be ugly. We walked out of there, in, I think, in a fog. We didn't really know where we were and didn't remember much of the, about that day, but I do remember um, we were walked out of the hospital and we were embracing and Moira said, well, what do we do? And the only answer I had was, I don't know. I don't know. And that's where we were at. It turns out we did not make the choice to terminate the pregnancy. We ended up staying in the journey with our child, whatever that meant. Um, but this story really isn't about that choice. Yeah, it's really about the next choice that we needed to make. And what we realized is if we're going to be in this journey, the choice we need to make is how are we going to show up for this kid? And are we willing to learn? Because our world completely changed to a different place. For me, that journey was really about letting go. And for me, it was about getting in the fight. Let's get at this. we got to figure this out. At the time, I was on the faculty at the University of Minnesota, so I went into research mode. Uh, within about 24 hours, my students and I had pretty much literally every paper that had ever been published on our child's condition, which was called congenital diaphragmatic hernia, or CDH. Yep. So in our son's case, he, did, he had a severe case, and in utero, he had no left diaphragm. So his stomach, his intestines, and his liver floated up into his chest, pushed his heart to the wrong side, and didn't allow his lungs to grow. So when he was born, he wasn't going to have the ability to breathe on his own. Paul, that's so powerful. What, what were your first thoughts hearing that? Well, first of all, we've produced a lot of these breakfasts, and never has the room been quieter. The intensity, the, the intense sincerity and focus was something that we had yet to experience at this stage. Yeah. My first reaction was, isn't it amazing how a husband and wife who've chosen to live together for the rest of their lives can react to the same situation totally differently? She's talking about the need to let go, and he, like I would, <laughs> decided, okay, it's time to kick in the fight. That was really fascinating to me. How about you? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I said I'm a new mom, so we were not we're not that far off from having that 20-week appointment. And I, can, I, I feel a pit in my stomach still and my heart beating faster, just thinking of what being in their shoes and what would that feel like. The power of coming around to we have choice and here's the choice we need to make in terms of how do we show up, that struck me. Yeah, let's, let's just keep listening. A really wise family friend made the comment that all you can do is love him as he is right now. And that was a really centering thought for me for the rest of the pregnancy. And once I was able to do that, I was actually able to really enjoy the rest of the pregnancy by letting go of this desire or need to know. And for me, that diagnosis, I think, was probably the biggest gift of my life. Because as Paul kind of alluded to, we were pretty independent and we were, we, we were doing a lot of fun things together, and we were doing a lot of fun things with our friends outside. And uh, before our son came along, um, you know, we were thinking, or at least I was thinking, hey, man, this isn't going to change a whole lot. You know, we got just one kid. It's not going to get in the way. And I was kind of detached a little bit from the pregnancy. It was that thing growing in my wife's stomach. It's going to show up in a few months. And yeah, it's going to impact our life. And 
that diagnosis changed everything for me. Because for all I knew, the only relationship I was going to have with that kid was while he was in Moira's stomach. And so I wanted to get into relationship. I wanted to name him. I wanted to talk to him. And it changed my relationship with Moira. And I become, became much more invested in the future of her family. So what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, I, I just had a big sigh. Um, there's so much that's so powerful in that. I mean, I think a few things, but the all you can do is love him as he is right now. You know, I got that advice actually before marrying Tori about being in a marriage relationship. Huh. Um, but I, I think that it's, there's something so freeing in being able to just let go a little bit and, and let the situation be what it is, which is a really hard concept when you're used to being in charge of things. Yeah, and it was funny how um, I listened through the lens of a dad. I, I vividly remember what it was like to be uh, and anticipating what it was like to be a father. Um, mm -hmm. I watched Melinda, my wife, carry our son Ben, and I watched all these things happening to her and all these things that she was doing, and I felt like I bought a ticket for it. <laughs> it didn't affect me anything at all. Yeah, yeah. And You're I was the audience watching, you Yeah, mean? I was just watching yeah. this whole thing happen with great promise, but I was also thinking, feeling kind of helpless and help, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and silly in the process. And so I can definitely see his side of the story here where, ooh, that, that immediately caused focus. So mm -hmm. it's just fascinating how things that most people take for granted, like a healthy pregnancy. In the middle of that, everything changed for them. And I think it, the, the gift here is that in a very short period of time, this audience got to know both Eric and Moira very closely. Right. So let's get back into it. So I was induced, went in at 7 a.m. to get induced. And of course, as often goes in these cases, um, the child decided not to come out. So <laughs> by about 9 p.m., we ended up having to do an emergency C-section. Um, we wanted to make sure that his team was there. And so Moira gets scooted off to the surgery room to, um, to have the C-section and um, get our son Kieran delivered and I was brought in, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes after they're into that procedure. And I get into the room and I get to sit next to Moira, she's laying. And what I notice is that there's um, five additional people in this room to save his life. There's a nurse right next to me and then kind of where that sign is, uh, there's a door with four people waiting to save his life. And I think in that first minute of his life, I learned more in that first minute than I did the rest of my life combined. Now, it didn't all show up in that first minute, but that created context for what came before and what came after. But what did show up was that, you know, intellectually, I knew that I didn't have control. I got that concept. But that's the first time that I really experienced it. Because here's my wife on the table with her abdomen open. There's five people waiting to save our kid's life because he's not going to be able to breathe on his own. And a few hours earlier, I had signed all these papers giving up all parental rights, decision rights, to the docs because they needed to be in action. There was no time for them to check with us. And all the hard conversations that we had had, as a first-time parent, I still went in, I, I was in this belief of my biggest responsibility was gonna be to protect and create security for this kid. And that belief system got blown apart in that first minute. And I realized that yes, that's a really, really big part of my responsibility, 
but maybe even a bigger responsibility is I'm gonna need to be able to teach this kid tools to operate in an insecure world. And that changed everything for me going forward as a parent. And oh, by the way, I needed those tools for myself right then and there. I think the reframe that Eric had is beautiful. And, and my, my first response to it was yes, it's to remember that our job isn't what it looks like our job is sometimes. I actually, listening to them, thought about my role as parent, and then I thought about actually when I coach people how often I use the concept of parenting, even before I was a parent, Paul, <laughs> in leadership, because there are so many similar things. We think we're supposed to do this thing for our team when often it's equipping them and giving them tools, like Eric's talking about. Yeah, so um, at our worst, I think we ask the question, well, what choice do I have? Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of a cop-out. <laughs> mm -hmm. We have choices in every situation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're easier to see than others. But to hear the two of them, first she, had, um, she, she was hoping not to have uh, a C-section, but um, Kieran made that decision. So she had, you know, she had to choose to mm -hmm. say yes to that. And the choice um, that the redirect of the choices that he felt like he was making in terms mm -hmm. of his role in that situation, I think that's very powerful. We never know when we take risks. Every time we come to the office, every time as a leader, we try to start something new, mm -hmm. you never know how it's going to go. And I was struck by how optimistic and positive he became for something that he knew nothing about. <laughs> and I just think that adds to why this story is so compelling for us. Yeah. Let's keep listening. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's move on to the next thing. So uh, now they're about to bring uh, bring Kieran home. <laughs> but he ended up coming home much sooner than we anticipated. Yeah. We were actually expecting him to be in for at least another month or two. <laughs> yeah, so much sooner. So um, as much as we were focused on, you know, the future of what could be, we were still highly aware of what might be. We didn't have any a shower. We didn't paint his room. We didn't buy a crib. We didn't do anything at all. So a month ahead of when we might be coming home, literally we're at the hospital, and they said, oh, your son's going home tomorrow. <laughs> and we looked at the other and goes, oh, shit. <laughs> we have a lot of work to do tonight. <laughs> so that was the night of going and getting the crib and and uh, you know all the stuff that we needed to bring our kid home the next day. And it was pretty awesome. <laughs> but we were losing our full-time caregivers because the nurses were no longer there. <laughs> so when he came home, he was actually, because he had to be on so many, um, so many medications, um, he was actually addicted to morphine and a number of other narcotics. So part of our job in that first month was to wean him off of these medications. It was clear that he loved to be out in the world and needed to be out and engaged in the world. When you took him outside, his face would just light up. You could see him taking it all in. And when we went to coffee shops, he would stare with intense curiosity at people until they looked back at him, you know, <laughs> He'd be watching what was going on there. He loved it, loved it. But it was really challenging because he um, was, you know, weaning off of these pain meds. He had a full-time feeding tube att attached to him 24-7 that would beep and it would spill out this stinky formula. And he had a, a, he was on a high flow of oxygen at the time. So he had a cannula in one of those big oxygen tanks that you usually see in people who are, you know, in their later years of life. So 
I would gather all this equipment and take them out and we'd go into a coffee shop and um, inevitably, the other part of this that would happen is inevitably he would start screaming and he theoretically, supposedly, I still don't believe this is true, supposedly has one paralyzed vocal cord, but this kid can scream. <laughs> so he would scream and then he'd puke up green bile. And this happened multiple times a day. I could never predict when or it might happen or not. The first time it happened when we were in a coffee shop, I was horrified. Even polite Minnesotans couldn't help but stare when this was <laughs> happening. My instinct in that moment was to scoop that kid up, take him home, and not leave the house for quite a while. What I realized was that that was my fear driving that instinct. It was my fear of being judged and my desire, again, as a polite Minnesotan, to keep all of the other adults in the room happy and comfortable. It most certainly was not what was best for this kid. This kid needed to be out in the world if he was going to get from surviving to thriving. So that was something I really still to this day have to pay attention to, is what are the stories and the fears that are driving my behavior and my reactions? That hits home so much for me. One of the things that I thought about coming into parenthood was how do I not let my own shame become his shame? So when I feel embarrassed, when I feel like I'm messing up or it's making other people uncomfortable, how do I not make that about my kid? And how do I protect him from that? And it's my junk. Um, so her saying that just resonated so deeply for me. Yeah, what a dramatic visual. Just think about mm -hmm. all that equipment. What it must <laughs> take to put it all in the car and get that out of the car, get him out of the car, finally get to some place where you feel like you can relax. And now this kid's screaming and puking all over the place. I mean, that's spectacle. Just, yeah. you know, I think I know many people who would just die of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. So what went through my mind was this quote um, that I can't could call at the moment where it is, but I'm going to go find out now after this. Is this <laughs> quote that says, men are what their mothers made them. And I'm thinking that Kieran is one lucky kid. Hmm. that he had a mom that was willing to go through her own junk and figure out the fact that it is all about how is this kid going to grow and live in uh, the real world, even though he's got a really fascinating, you know, fabulous problem mm -hmm. that just really uh, made their lives difficult. And it it's all also, I think it's easy to make the connection to ask the question, where is the goodness in this? When we talk about goodness and leadership, we talk about an other's orientation mm -hmm. and that you are at your very best when you're focused on what do the other people need? How do we find the goodness in others and make that grow? And I'm seeing Moira Petit right now as a tremendous example of what do we mean by radiating goodness? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and I think um, giving him the capacity to grow is actually how their story wraps up. So I'm really excited, or at least takes us to present day of yes. their story. So let's play that. Good. Kieran's nine years old. He's in fourth grade. And the dude's been a super stud. <laughs> We've learned so much from this guy. He, uh, he's totally engaged in life. He's, he's bright. He's uh, super empathetic. Uh, he, um, yeah, the only way that you can tell from the outside that anything's going on with this kid is you, he lifts up a shirt, which he does, <laughs> uh, and you can play tic-tac-toe on his abdomen from all of his scars. He had over 10 surgeries before he was two years old. When one of his main doctors, who was a neo in the NICU and 
uh, his pulmonologist, so he knows Kieran better than any doc because he's seen him a couple times a year. It's his lung doctor. And he came up afterwards and said, uh, Eric, I just want to share a couple of things with you. He said, first of all, um, people don't realize how hard it is to create lung capacity without a working diaphragm. And so what the way he gets fixed is everything that was up here, once they got his hypertension under control with the ECMO machine, they move it all back down and put in a prosthetic diaphragm. So it's there, but it doesn't work and help the lungs. He said, and I get blown away by what these kids can do as far as the lung capacity they can create. And you need to know that the reason Kieran has the lung capacity he has, and he's living the life that he is, is because of his attitude and what you allowed him to do. He said, and it just blew me away. And what he said, what I mean by that is, if you would have let his condition limit what he did, it would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy because his body wouldn't have been challenged enough to be able to adapt the way it needs to adapt to create the lung capacity that he has and live the life that he is. So one of the things that I've been practicing since I've been a business owner is this idea that I have to let go to let grow. Mm -hmm. And I think that Eric said it beautifully. Mm -hmm. They could have used this as an excuse to make any part of their life more explainable and easier. But the right path was to follow the path that Kieran needed to go on and let Kieran figure it out. They had to let go of so much in order for Kieran to grow. And it is, um, that's been consistent with my experience also in my coaching in terms of how I've helped people get past things where they were stuck. They had too many conditions, too many expectations, too many shoulds going on in their head. And when they finally release those, it's just amazing how much things can change for the better. So that, that's how I heard that. Mm -hmm. I take away this visual of really thinking about a picture of lungs and the, the space that you have within them to do what you need to do to live. And how if you're not being challenged, if you're not trying to fill up more space than you currently do, you're not stretching and growing enough. And so to me, to be able to come back to just a, a visual picture of what it, or what even what it feels like in your body to think about taking up more space and stepping into something new and challenging is powerful. There are so many places we could go with this, but um, one of the things that no one else knows is the discussion that I had with the two of them when they were trying to decide whether or not they would speak at the breakfast. And I asked them about how much did the hospital system change them and how much did they change the hospital system? Hmm. And he referred to this interview that he did with the person that was in charge of all of their care. And I think that's a really good place for us to go right now. And I had uh, the opportunity to uh, interview uh, the head of the neonatology unit uh, and the NICU unit. Uh, she was the woman who saved our kid's life. And she, uh, what we didn't know at the time uh, that she led us on to know is that right uh, before Kieran was born, they had gone on their own learning journey. And they had taken 10 neonatologists and 10 surgeons and all got together and aligned around a single protocol for these kids with severe CDH. And our son happened to be one of the first ones to receive this new protocol. And so I got to talk to her and interview her about what that process was like. 
And she said, well, I don't know if you know how hard it is, Eric, to get 10 Neils and 10 surgeons to agree on anything. <laughs> <laughs> they're all some of the best in the world. They all have their own expertise, and they're all doing it their way. And what we had to do is get them into a place to give up that way and get to a place that was going to be different than every single one of them was doing it currently. It was the combination of all their expertise. And I said, well, how do you do that? How did you get that done? And this is also where kind of the collision of our work in, our, in this journey really came together too. And she goes, well, Eric, I think you'll be really surprised by this. She goes, before we could get at the issues, let alone define the issues, what we had to do is we had to all get together and drop all the letters off the back of our name and get connected as people. We needed to get together and really expose ourselves and explore why we're here and what we're doing together. And what they rallied around, and it's the reason we ended up choosing the hospital, because it showed up in every interview we did with them, is we're here to fight for every kid. So there's the leadership message. Mm -hmm. I think we could probably, based on my experience, we could replace the word surgeons with lawyers, scientists, psychologists, consultants, coaches. <laughs> it seems that the desire to, by most leaders to build a team out of the best and brightest and most talented also means they bring with themselves a lot of opinions about how things should be done and how they shouldn't be done. And in my experience, and I know in yours, you and I've worked together on uh, client assignments before, it's difficult to get powerful people mm -hmm. who are proud of themselves, who have high aspirations to actually give up a piece of themselves so they can be better together. Mm -hmm. And I, that's just a, it's a beautiful story. How did you hear that, Kelsey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to build on that, I, the, we're here to fight for every kid. The times that the times that I've seen groups of people be able to do that, so leaders coming together and making real change is when they can align on something that they all believe in. And in this case, it's this powerful, beautiful concept that we can all get behind. We're here to fight for every kid. But each organization has the capacity to have something, to have their thing, to get people energized and excited and sincerely bought in, I think. Yeah, I think my one wish for every organization we've ever touched is they could come around and rally around something as clear and succinct and compelling as we're here to fight for every kid. Yeah. So the, one of the big themes of the day today at the breakfast was nothing significant ever happens alone. And I could see the wheels spinning in every single ticket holder in the audience thinking about the myriad of people that it takes for them to become their special selves. Mm. And that was something that really resonated with both um, Eric and Moira when we were talking, you know, in the break between their, their keynote presentation and then the interview we did. And uh, th there's one particular thing that we talked about in the interview that was related to um, our intellectual property that we call the seven Fs. Um, anyone who's a regular attendee of The Breakfast knows that we believe that a combination of these seven words, faith, family, finances, fitness, friends, fun, and future, uh, helps people live a good life and come from a good place. And if you come from a good place, it's easier to, to uh, radiate goodness. Um, I think his answer to the question when I asked them about how, where, was, where did they find the seven Fs in this journey is important. And uh, just by reference, we asked people to do an assessment of one to ten. One means it couldn't be any worse in my life and ten means it couldn't be any better. So there's a, there's a reference in that that I just want to make sure I could clear up before we cut to this cut. Yeah. 
Also, I'll just add that you can find the 7Fs wheel in goodleadership.com. So if you are more of a visual person, that is a way to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, good. Good reminder. Let's cut to that. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, how uh, relevant the 7Fs is in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, share uh, your thoughts about your experience through the 7Fs? Yeah, so you know, for me, especially going through all the different emotional ties, if, if I would have taken any one of the 7Fs, on its own, I'm not sure um, how close to tens we would have been uh -huh. in some of the things. Uh -huh. uh, so, and, it, and it certainly wouldn't have been a wheel. Uh -huh. Like some things were good <laughs> and some things were really bad. Yeah. Like for example, um, our first bill, 30 days into Kieran's life. <laughs> see, put a, put a number in your head. A million and sixty-five thousand uh dollars. -huh. We were clicking at a million a month to keep this guy alive. Right? So finances, not a 10. And while he was in the NICU, um, I can remember, you know, tragedy kind of helps bring some clarity sometimes, but I can remember so often all the promises I was making to myself of what type of father I was going to be, what kind of um, husband, um, oh, I really got to get back to work with that million dollars, yeah, all these things. <laughs> And then I got back into life, and life happened. And it was hard to fulfill on all those promises. Mm -hmm. But what, for me, what I learned through this is wherever, whether I was at a one, a three, or not rolling at all, that the practice to get me back to clarity and what would expand wherever I was, all seven, was gratitude. It was mm -hmm. just focusing on what I was grateful for, mm -hmm. and wherever the individual ones were, they all just expanded. Yeah, so when Eric's talking about this idea of expanding, just to give you the visual for those of you who aren't familiar with the 7F's wheel, we talk about it as if will your wheel roll, and the bigger <laughs> and broader the wheel is, the more momentum you can have. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he's talking about. And my goodness, he's right on, right? Mm -hmm. Gratitude is what can push each of those things because that's sh that's your perspective. And this whole the whole point of the 7F's wheel is to measure from your perspective how life is going across these different spokes. Yes, and it's, uh, I heard every one of the seven S, faith, family, finance, fitness, friends, fun, and future wrapped up in pretty much every segment of their story. So that's, I think, was very fulfilling for the regular guests who attend the Good Leadership Breakfast. So probably the most important job that we have as coaches is to help people um, identify some actionable insights that come out of listening to a story like this. Um, I have one that I thought I would share, and then I'm going to ask you, and then we'll uh, close this uh, podcast today. Uh, so for me, um, I am hoping that people can think about where they're stuck in their lives, where things aren't going as they expected, and consider the idea that they can let go to actually let it grow or to find the goodness as we see. So um, uh, pretty much everyone has something that's maybe not going the way they want it to in their lives. For me right now, it's my fitness. So there's some things that I'm letting go of to try to improve that fitness. And so that's the actual insight that came out for me. Hmm. How about for you, Kelsey? Yeah, um, I think on the same token is where the things aren't going as well as we'd like them to be, how do I put on that lens of gratitude? Mm -hmm. How do I um, approach it from a new angle and find the goodness in the situation? Yeah, good. Well, thank you. Thanks for making the time today, Kelsey. I, I love working with you. So as we close this podcast, let's go back to the central part of our theme. It's this idea that goodness pays. So let's hear Eric and Moira say goodness pays. Goodness, goodness pays. pays. How about you, Kelsey? 
Goodness pays. Yes, goodness pays. Thank you for investing the time to go deeper into your leadership with the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. We look forward to uh, connecting with you soon. Mm-hmm.